You're listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Lubbock, Texas. Redeemer Church is a gospel-centered, missional family of disciples making disciples and churches planting churches. If you would like to get more information or donate to this ministry, please visit RedeemerLubbock.org. Good morning, Redeemer. My name is Keenan Harris. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and we're glad that you're here with us this morning. That, as you can tell, we are continuing our series through the book of Romans, that we're going to be preaching through and reading through the book of Romans this entire school calendar school year. And so as we preach through it, we're also reading the Bible devotionally together. And so the great thing about this reading plan is if you haven't joined us or if you've fallen off, it's really easy to get, get caught up. We're only reading two or three verses a day, and so we're going really slow. So we hope you will join in on this reading plan with us, and I hope it's been and will be as meaningful and impactful for you as it has been for me. And so Dusty covered the first half of chapter 2 last week, and I'm going to be obviously here in the second half of chapter 2. And what we need to understand is that Paul has written this to those that are in Rome. And what we need to understand is that this letter would have been read in its entirety. And so one of the challenges of just focusing in on one specific passage is we kind of lose sight of this entire point that he's trying to make. That the first three chapters of Romans, what he's trying to get the listeners to understand and get us to understand is that we all suppress the knowledge of our creator and we worship created things, put our hope in and worship created things rather than the creator himself. And in the early part of chapter 2, Dusty preached on it last week, and if you missed it, you need to go back and listen to it because it's building on that, that he, pre- he taught, he condemned the Jews for their condescension, their judgment, and their hypocrisy. And so as I was like prepping for this and writing this, I found myself thinking like, why do we do these things that we're going to be talking about extensively here in just a second? Or as Michael Scott would say, like, why are we the way that we are? Like, why do we do these things? And it, I, I, what I see that we share with the original audience is that all of us, regardless of where we come from or who we are, we all want to be accepted. That we need to have some sense of right standing. That we're motivated, all areas of our life, we're motivated by either this approval from others or being able to approve of ourself, or to get applause from others or be able to applause ourselves, or to have some sense of authority and acceptance and right standing. This, specifically for this passage, it's a, the reason why we do a lot of the like, spiritual acts and the obedience that we do, but I think it trickles into every area of our life, that we need to be right. We want to be accepted. We want to be celebrated. We want to belong and fit in. We want right standing. And so in order to do that, every single day and throughout the day, we're having to answer two questions. One, who is the judge of my right standing and my acceptance? And two, what is the standard by which I can attain that right standing and that acceptance? So for example, that this has been true for my entire life, that I've always struggled with you know, insecurity and wanting to be approved of, that every morning of middle school and high school, like getting dressed, I was constantly wondering if my Doc Martens were still in style, or I wouldn't leave the house without the puka shell necklace, or that if right in middle school and high school, ankle socks were coming into uh, style, but I only had tube socks and my parents wouldn't buy me the ankle socks, so what I would do is I would roll my tube socks 
into my shoe so it would look like an ankle sock. And blisters, for sure. Did it make me look cool? Probably not. And listen, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, all I have to say to you is, is it must have been nice having ankle socks, and I'm genuinely really happy for you. Um, <clears throat> Or, like, think about, like, the advances in technology, wondering if, like, my Crazer or my Razor were in style and my ringtones were up to date, that I would let that ringtone ring a little bit longer to see if my friends would approve of me, right? And the thing is, is who is the judge in that circumstance? It would have been my middle school or high school peers, which, to be honest, brutal judges, right? And then two, the standard of that acceptance and that right standing would have been up-to-date fashion and technology. That thinking, I will have right standing, I will be accepted if I have up-to-date fashion and technology of whoever them is approving of those things. And it's not like I've aged out of this. Like This is just one example that I so desperately want to be today a really good dad. And that's a really good thing. I don't think there's a single person in here that, sh- that would say, Keenan, I think you should desire to be a bad dad. But the problem comes in is when I find my sense of right standing, my sense of acceptance, my sense of identity through the lens of parenting. Because one, the judge becomes either my children or other parents. And two, the standard would be if my kids say I'm a great dad or they still love me into adulthood or parents respecting my parenting. And I find myself thinking, I will have right standing. I will be accepted if either I don't screw up my kids or if I parent better than other parents. Another way to think about this is, who do you envision watching your life, the things that you do, and what do you have to do to get them to smile at you, applaud for you, talk highly about you behind your back? Is it the person in the mirror that you're kind of watching the tape of your life and as long as you can look back on that day and think, great job, you will have right standing? Is it your parents? Is it your boss? Is it your friends, your roommates, your children? Who is it? Who is watching your life and what do you have to do to get them to approve of you and say, you have right standing? You see, the Bible word for right standing or acceptance is righteousness, And we're going to be working through these verses. And what Paul is trying to point out is the wrong ways that we seek righteousness, the wrong ways that we seek right standing. And what he's going to be confronting is is the false righteousness that they're pursuing and the wrong judges and the wrong standards. And so we're going to have a lot of fun. So we're going to start in verses 12 through 16 that Chloe read. And I'm not going to read these, um, but uh, they'll be on the screen, okay? So in verses 12 through 16, keep in mind that anytime he uses the word for, it basically means the word because. And it has to be Paul's one of favorite words, one of his favorite words, because he says it probably 18,000 times, not really, but a lot in the book of Romans, because he's continually building upon this argument. He's building on verse 11 that said, God shows no partiality partiality for, okay? Because then he's building on and he's saying, we are all unrighteous, but we all seek righteousness in the wrong ways. He briefly confronts the Jews and the fact that they equate hearing the law to righteousness, growing up hearing it all the time, attending the synagogue and hearing it read. And he's saying, no, hearing is not sufficient enough for righteousness because the Gentiles prove you can do the law and obey the commandments of God without hearing them and without knowing them. And he says, even the Gentiles, they can't claim right standing due to ignorance of the law because one, they're they're without excuse for two reasons. 
One, we already pointed this out in Romans 1.20, that they suppress the knowledge of God, that God has revealed himself in the things that he has created. His divine nature, his eternal power have been clearly on display for us in the things that he's created. Yet all of us, we suppress that knowledge of God and worship created things rather than the creator. And then the second reason they're without excuse is that they suppress the knowledge of God's morality and his moral code that all of us are made in the image of God, and we've all been wired with a sense of right and wrong. That take children, for example, okay? That what is the greatest possible offense to a kindergartner their first day of school? It's being cut in line, right? That that is a huge offense that if you ask a child what, how was their first day of school, they will likely say so-and-so cut in line and all of us basically booed them to the back of the line. And no one had to teach them that, right? They know that being cut in line or not taking turns, though they don't take turns, they know if someone does that to them, it's wrong. It's been hardwired into them. Or even bigger examples than this, take in a a culture today where you do you is a constant refrain, right? There's still limits to that, that most of us would agree, do not murder, do not steal, do not abuse, that we are made in the image of God and we have his law written on our hearts, we just suppress it. So, to uh, a religious Gentile in Rome, the standard of their righteousness would have been, or the judge of their righteousness would have been the polytheistic gods, all these gods that they worshipped, and the standard to get that righteousness would have been adherence to all the celebrations, the worship, the sacrifices, etc. But the first one specifically I want to point out um, would be this moral relativism righteousness, that a non-religious in Rome would have said, I am the judge of my own righteousness and the standard of that right standing is running after and gratifying my own desires or, do, or like my own sense of moralism. So if I'm getting what I want to get, then I'm good and I have right standing. Or if I'm doing what I say is right and, what I, and not doing what I say is wrong, then I'm good. And this sounds oddly familiar, Right? That this is a refrain in our day and age that you do you, moral relativism. You are the judge of your own sense of morality. And so if it's right for you, that's great. But what's right for me is what's right for me. And the problem with this is, one, it's at best shifting sand. Because your own sense of desires and your own sense of moralism is ever-changing. Or what if it conflicts with the person beside you in their own sense of moralism? If what I say is right for me impedes on what you say is right for you, it creates conflict. And then two, at worst, it's destructive. Because when we are left to our own devices and our own desires, we don't always pursue great things, right? And maybe you've experienced that. The thing that you thought you wanted, you go and get it, and what does it bring? disappointment, or at times destruction to self or those around you. That you may feel right or feel like you have right standing, but are you going in a direction that is life-giving? Again, like we've all been created with God's standard and God's law on our hearts. We just suppress that standard and create our own sense of standard so we can feel like we have right standing or acceptance. Let's keep going. I told you this would be fun. All right, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, 
and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So now in this section, he starts going off of those with the background in Judaism. And he's saying to them, look, coming from verse 18, okay, you know his will, you know the law. You do not just hear it, but you know it through and through. And you think that this makes you righteous. That this is the second one, this Bible knowledge righteousness, this false righteousness, that the judge would be yourself and the standard of your right standing and acceptance would be either knowledge of the law or your obedience compared to others. He's saying, okay, you are the judge and the standard of your is, do you know the law well enough to what you would say is enough or your obedience compared to others? This person would say, I have right standing because I know the Bible. I know his will. I know what is right and wrong. Or I'm acceptable because I keep the law and obey better than them, whoever them is, right? And so you can look into other people's lives and maybe you don't obey obey better than person A, but I do obey better than person B, so I'm good, And he goes on to ask, like, do you actually practice the things that you preach? Do you actually embody the righteousness that you claim to have? And again, we are no different than the Jews here, that we can equate right knowledge of God and his commands to right standing because it gives us a sense of authority. And if we have a sense of authority over others morally, then we must be right That we can get our sense of righteousness by looking into other people's lives and say, well, I would never blank, so I'm good. That, for example, the standard we lower to allow ourselves to attain it. So, for example, you know that you should not be sexually immoral. But what that is for you is homosexuality or sex before marriage, but you're consumed by your compulsion to pornography, But I'm good because I'm not doing this. I'm preaching against this, but I'm living here. Or you say, I would never steal. Do not steal. Yet, if you're a remote employee, do you just kind of wiggle the mouse so that green online dot comes on and you go back to doing chores around your house? That I'm stealing salary, I'm stealing income, but it's not really stealing. Like, I would never rob a bank, yet I'm okay with this. Or you would say, I'm never going to worship an idol. I'm only going to worship the God of the Bible and not these other world religions. Yet, we're consumed by worshiping other gods of of money and sex and approval from others and control over others. That What Paul is trying to get you and I to understand is that just because you are right about the right things does not mean you are right with God. Just because you are right about the right things and what is right and what is wrong in the Bible does not necessarily give you right standing with God. You can be a great discussion participant in a gospel community and not be right with God because righteousness does not come from right Bible knowledge, but you're tempted to think that you are because you know what gets applauded in Christian circles. 
that if I'm getting applauded and if I'm getting approval from others based on my Bible knowledge, then I'm good. You're tempted to think that you have right standing because knowing the Bible gets you approval from those around you and you sit around looking into other people's lives, poking holes in their righteousness to feel better about your sense of righteousness. And look, there's a cost to this. That Look again at verses 23 and 24. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That when we live hypocritically, thinking we have right standing and better moral authority than others, it leads to God being blasphemed by non-believers. That when you hear non-Christians say that Christians are their greatest barrier to them considering Christ, this is what they're talking about. That I have had conversation after conversation of people from across the table, whether at lunch or coffee, either they're not a Christian and they say they never will be, or they've walked away from following Jesus. And one of the common denominators in almost every single one of those conversations is their Christian friends. That they know how they actually live, though they claim one thing, they see how they actually live and how they treat their coworkers, how they treat their friends, how they treat their roommates, how they live on Friday night, and they're saying, no thanks. I want nothing with that God if that's how they're supposed to live. My life is no different than them. In a lot of areas, it's better than them. And listen, if you are a non, if you're not a believer here, First of all, I want you to know that I'm so honored that you are here. You're wanted here with all of your questions and with all of your doubts. And what I need you to understand here is that God himself does not excuse this. Like he's addressing it. He sees your hurt and your experience and he actually says, that dishonors me. And then there's a cost to yourself if you are a Christian living in this way that I can be tempted to equate my righteousness to Bible knowledge or spiritual obedience. And the problem is, is what happens when I have a week where I don't read the Bible as often as I should, or I'm not praying as much as I should. Insecurity creeps in. That is God mad at me? Has my sense of right standing kind of wavered? Has God's approval and acceptance of me? Is he disappointed in me? That it's this hamster wheel that we can never attain. Last example, verses 25 through 27, says this. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. I don't think I've ever said circumcision that many times. Okay. So what you and I need to understand is that there's a lot. We've already covered a few of them. But the book of Romans, I love it. And there's so many truths that are like debated. I don't want to use the word controversial. But there's so many truths in the book of Romans that are debated between Christians and non-Christians. We've already covered some of them. And there's surely more to come. But what I need you to understand, to the Jewish listeners in this audience, as this letter was being read, this would have been the most shocking of them all. Like this would have been the most destabilizing to them, that we read this and we're thinking, okay, circumcision, cool, and we kind of move on. But to them, this would have been significant, 
that if you read Genesis 17, 9 and 10, circumcision, all you need to know about it, circumcision of males was the sign or the seal of the covenant between God and Abraham, that Abraham and his descendants would be God's chosen people, that it was meant to be a reminder to them of what God has done and that they belong to him. Yet they missed the point. They thought that their righteousness came from the sign of in simply being an Israelite or from some sense of like spiritual heritage. And that's the third false righteousness, the spiritual heritage righteousness. That a Jew listening would have said, the judge is my people or my culture and the standard of my right standing would have been circumcision. Okay, but for us, it'd be like West Texas Christianity that we can tend to think that we get righteousness from a spiritual heritage. And it's just not true. That you'll hear this a lot of the time in baptism stories, and it was true for me. That if you grew up in the church, you can be tempted to think, grow up assuming you have right standing before God simply because church is something that you've always done. That you're tempted to think that my parents are the judge or my West Texas culture is the judge. So if I do what my parents did or if I do what West Texas people do, I'm good. I have right standing. I have acceptance. And look, I'm not bashing and I promise you I'm really not. But I hear hear people say all the time this quote of, I've always been a Christian. No, you haven't. And if you think that you have, just wait for Romans 3. He's really going to unpack that for you next week, okay? You have not always been a Christian. That righteousness cannot be passed down to you by a parent. Righteousness is not something that you inherit from the spiritual heritage or lineage of parents or grandparents. Righteousness does not come from simply being in West Texas or growing up in a specific region, Righteousness is not something you can attain like secondhand smoke and just being around other people who are Christians. You can't get it from a spiritual heritage. It is a dead end. And look, we could honestly do this all day long. All these different types of false righteousness. And I'm not going to unpack all of these. But I want to even just show you more. That we on a daily basis look for our right standing and acceptance on a day-to-day basis. That the first four, again, job righteousness, family righteousness, theological righteousness, sexual righteousness. Take, for example, this one of job righteousness. What this sense of right standing and acceptance comes from of my boss is the judge or my colleagues are the judge and then the standard of my right standing is promotions or a salary or profit margins. And the reason why this is a dead end and the problem with this is, is everything is good. You have a sense of right standing when you are experiencing those successes. But what happens when you lose your job? What happens when that boss you love that knows how to manage you, knows your strengths and knows all the ways that you've contributed to the company, what happens if they leave and the new boss doesn't respect you or you're starting at ground zero again? The right standing you once had is now gone. Or the next group that we can look at is things like intellectual righteousness, schedule righteousness, mercy righteousness, approval righteousness. That approval righteousness comes from if people I approve of and people I respect approve of and respect me, then I'm good. Again, the judge would be people I approve of and I respect, and the standard would be whatever it takes to get them to approve of and respect me. A lot of times these people 
are the ones that I mentioned earlier in that question of who do you envision watching your life and what do you have to do to get them to smile at you, applaud for you, think highly of you? And a lot of times it's people you approve of and you respect. But the problem is, is do you really know what it's going to take to get them to approve of you? And honestly, they're not thinking about you. Nobody is thinking about you as much as you think that they are. Okay, or the next group, okay? It can be things like financial righteousness, political righteousness, tolerance righteousness. That again, financial righteousness could be the judge being self and the standard being some set of income that you think once you attain, then you'll have right standing. Or the judge could be a friend group and the standard being keeping up with the Joneses. That my vacations have to look like their vacations. My home needs to be in their neighborhood and look like their home. My car needs to be better than their car. Like it's a hamster wheel that we're never able fully to attain. Yet we spend all of our day, all of our time consumed by it. Who's the judge? What is the standard? And look, like I want you to notice that in all these examples, the judge is either yourself or others around you. And this is what the Bible would call like approval from man that we so desperately and sinfully try to attain, that we look for our right standing, our sense of acceptance from ourselves or the people around you, and it's not sustainable because it's ever-changing. So who is the right judge and what is the right standard? Well, let's look again at 16, 28, and 29. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So God is the judge, and God is the standard. And this is a problem for us if you read Romans 3, which we'll get to next week, because Romans 3 says, none is righteous. Okay, so if God is the judge and God is the standard, how do we get acceptance? How do we get right standing? And this is what Paul is trying to get us to understand, that you have the wrong standard. If you know that God is the standard, you know that there are no external actions, affiliations that you can attain or works that you can do to get that righteousness and that acceptance. That it can only come, he says, through a transformed heart by the Spirit of God. That if God is the judge and God is the standard, the only way you can have right standing is if it comes from him. That go back to the thesis statement of Romans, the whole book of Romans, Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What he's saying here is that the gospel, the gospel just means the word good news. Uh, The gospel in four words is Jesus in my place. That the gospel brings salvation to everyone who believes that righteousness is by faith alone. Faith in this gospel, that righteousness comes from a transformed heart that no longer seeks righteousness from external measures, but instead through faith in Jesus. 
That's what it's talking about, that God judges the secrets of our hearts by Christ Jesus. And that's good news for us, that we are judged whether or not we have faith in Jesus, faith in his perfect righteousness, faith in his death for our unrighteousness, and faith in his resurrection that gives us righteousness. That look again at what it says in verse 17. It says, the righteous shall live by faith. It does not say that the righteous shall live by their own standards. It does not say that the righteous shall live by Bible knowledge. It does not say that the righteous shall live by their ability to overcome sin or their own spiritual heritage. It does not say that the righteous shall live by job success or approval from others or right political affiliations. It does not say that the righteous shall live by applause from others or being able to accept yourself. It says that the righteous shall live by faith. That if God is the judge and God is the standard, that the way that you access this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus. That if God is the judge and God is the standard, that if you've placed your faith in Jesus, the verdict is accepted, loved, wanted, welcome, right and sure standing. And here's the beautiful irony. That look again at the end of 29. I cannot believe this. Like I, his praise is not from man, but from God. That his living by faith in Jesus by the Spirit results in praise, not from man, but from God. This results in the God of the universe approving and accepting and praising and celebrating and delighting in you. That the the thing that you and I so desperately want, acceptance, praise, celebration, applause from men and women around us, we can have from God. Like that, someone who has always struggled with insecurity and approval, I can actually have that from the God of the universe. That approval from man is never satisfying because one, you don't know what they want, and two, it's ever-changing. And applause from man is fleeting because it's always, what are you going to do next? Okay, I applaud you here, but what's next? The next performance, the next job, the next thing. But we get so focused on focusing on those around us that we lose sight of what we can have in the God of the universe. That J.R. Vassar says this, make the opinion of the one who matters most matter most to you, that rather than these people around you that have intrinsic value and worth, how about instead of focusing on their opinion of you, make the opinion of the one who matters most matter most to you. That Back to my original question of who do you envision watching your life and the things that you do and what do you have to do to get them to smile at you, applaud for you, talk highly of you behind your back? What would change about your life and my life if my sense of security, my sense of right standing and acceptance, what would change if I believe that it's God who's watching my life and the things that I do and I knew that God, through faith in Jesus, accepts me, declares me righteous and declares me as right standing and praises and loves me. That I have right standing because of faith in Jesus. I have the acceptance that I so desperately want because of faith in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we come before you um, and we want this. We want um, to be accepted 
We want to have right standing. And so God, we are grasping at straws, trying to get that sense of righteousness, that that right standing through all of these external measures around us. And God, they're insufficient. They're not enough. They're deceptive. It doesn't actually deliver the thing that we want, which is right standing and acceptance from you. And so God, may we repent of anything, all the things that, all the different types of false righteousness that you've confronted this morning. And may we be reminded that our acceptance and our righteousness comes through faith and faith alone. In Jesus' righteousness on our behalf, his death for our unrighteousness, and his resurrection. God, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.